Hello, hello. Hey up, what's up, what's good? Que cosa sucede? Ni hao, priviet. Welcome to the Any Given Runway Show. I'm your host, Randall Carlton Green. Any Given Runway celebrates the exploration of new cultures by highlighting some of the most interesting, intellectual, and artistic people in the world. Everyone has a story. Each person a scholar. We have an outstanding show for today with an unforgettable guest and easily one of my favorite conversations that I've had. Author, political activist, and refugee from Afghanistan, Gowali Pasarle, joins the show. Gowali is author of one of my favorite books that I've read over the last several years called The Lightless Sky. In that book, he shares with us his experiences as a political refugee in the United Kingdom and the impossible journey that took him over a year and through many different countries. While living in, the, in Afghanistan, his life was being threatened by the war that was going on, but also by the Taliban. And Gowali's family aimed for him to have a better life, and in order to do so, he needed to get to England. As a refugee, one can't simply jump on the next metro or flight from Afghanistan to England, and instead, his traumatic ordeal put him firsthand with many unsavory characters, many dangerous situations, and his determination and his, and his commitment to his mother pushed him through. He endured many horrors throughout the travel. And as a trip in which many political refugees attempt, but few succeed, he left Afghanistan in 2006 and years later found himself graduating with a degree in politics from the University of Manchester. He recently finished his master's at MPA at Coventry University, and in 2008 he co-founded My Bright Kite to empower refugee youth and create awareness about the challenges asylum seekers and refugees faced in their host society. On today's episode, Wally talks about how he was able to battle the day-to-day hardships and the constant bouts of uncertainty throughout his journey. And he also chats about the importance of sharing his story with others. And finally, Gowali talks about My Bright Kite, why he founded it, and what the resources that it provides. Like I mentioned, The Lightless Sky is one of my favorite books of the last several years, and I encourage everyone to pick it up immediately. It's just page after page of things going wrong on his trip. For every one step forward he took, it seemed to be 20 steps back. His health and his life were constantly at risk, and the fact that he did it all while being 12 years old is even more remarkable. On top of having such a great book, this was also such a fun, wonderful conversation. He's extremely intelligent, extremely thoughtful, and he makes it a point to follow social and world issues that affect us. And I love the work that he's doing for refugees and for underrepresented populations. He's an incredible man, and I'm lucky to know him, and I think I've met a friend for life in Gowali. Thrilled for everyone to meet him, so let's go ahead and bring on author of The Lightless Sky, Gowali Pasarle, and let's learn. The world is a small place, so it's it's uh, it's great to be connected with you. I think the book has given me an opportunity to meet people like yourself. Otherwise, I would not have met or talked to. I think it was on your on your on your website. I think it was on part of the blog aspect. There was somebody that you met that didn't have a book on the train, and they needed a book to read, and and you gave them the book. Yeah, sure. Yeah, there's been a few occasions where I give people my book on the plane. I I feel I don't feel comfortable telling them telling people, oh, look, I'm an author and I, this is my I'm a published author. This is my book. But if people like wants to read a book and they don't have a book, and then I'm like, oh, I have an interesting book to give you. And then actually, um, that gentleman, he was a he was telling a story. I think he was a, a train conductor from Manchester to London. I I used to meet him quite often on the train. And then um, he was telling some stories about his uh, child to some passengers. I was sitting opposite, and he's like, yeah, I said, oh, you know. I have a story and here it is. So there's been a few occasions like that. Well, your story is remarkable and it's incredibly inspiring. You risked your life for a new future and you're faced with a long and arduous journey. So when embarking on the long journey that is filled with so much uncertainty, so much danger, how does one take the first step? 
I think that's a really interesting question. Uh, because I was a child, so I didn't really took the step on my own will or out of my own choice. So usually when you when you flee your homes in your country as a refugee, um, it's usually a family decision. It's your relative decides for you, your close loved ones, and then you you have to kind of, if you're old enough, you can maybe you know have a say, but if you're young as I was, I was just about 12. I did refuse, I did reject the idea of leaving home. I thought I needed to stay and support my family alongside my brother. <clears throat> but it was a, it was a strange feeling. I didn't really, I didn't really thought the implication and complexity in how things will work out. I I was thinking about there and then, and thinking about the family. Not so much, you know, what's going to happen ahead. Yeah. I I had again, I had I had no knowledge of the journey, the experiences, the people that I would meet, the smugglers in the networks and everything else, how things work. So at the time, for me, the most important thing was that I needed to stay. It was a dishonorable thing to do to leave my family because they were in distress and they needed me to be there even at the cost of my own life like it was a strange kind of feeling of running away being a kind of a traitor so there was a, a very uneasy feeling within me but I understood the complexity of the conflict and the things that we were involved in and how dangerous it was that any day we could lose our lives and now looking back at it like 13 14 years later I talked to my mom and my, my siblings back home and other friends as well they said to me that in Afghanistan you live by chance so if you can go, you go out in the morning to the bazaar, to the town, you don't expect to come back alive. You, 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 you expect the unexpected because there could be a suicide bombing, there could be a rocket attack, there could be an ID, and you, you, you may be there. And, and so there's been so many suicide bombings across Kabul city and there's been a lot of rocket attacks and so many people have lost their lives. You know, last year we had about 15,000 civilian casualties and uh, every year, every week, we have news of people people dying and people being killed. So it's just heartbreaking. So things have not improved in that sense. When I was there, it was not so much of a living a life of a chance, but now it is. Now, now people just think they just want to go by and people are very careful, but then they think we can't just stay home and do nothing. We have to get on with our lives and businesses and so on. We can't be afraid. And Afghans has become this, anyway, they become to these notions of war and conflict being part of the normal life. I see, I see, Videos of images. There was a Kabul. There was a there was a, a wedding hall was attacked, and uh, about 300 or so people were killed, and there was it was terrible. Uh, so many people were injured, and then a few days later, that wedding hall was opened again. The mirrors and everything was fixed. The glass was fixed, and the outside was clean from the blood. And people were coming back to have a wedding, mm. and so I was really surprised and shocked at the same time. Then I realized, well. It's Afghanistan. Sometimes there could be a suicide bombing a few few miles or a few kilometers away, and then you just get on with your life because you become so used to the violence and 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 the killing that it just become normalized, and that's really heartbreaking for me. Sorry, I'm answering a completely different question, <laughs> but I just yeah, I just went on a on a tangent. No, it's fascinating, and I appreciate you, t- you sharing that. And it's it almost sounds like so much of yours. The boldness of youth is there's there's times where being ignorant or not seeing the big picture is a value. Uncertainty loomed over every facet of your journey. How did those experiences augment your perception of not knowing the answer, of not knowing what could possibly happen? So th- this year has been incredibly challenging because of the doubt that individuals face. So how did your earlier experiences help you in handling the day-to-day uncertainty in life? Randall, the, 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 in life, I think what is really frustrating, so for example, whenever I travel somewhere, I have a plan, I'm going to take this train, I'm going to take this plane, or I'll drive there, I want to make sure I get there an hour before if I have a talk or an event. In life, I'm quite, I, I usually plan uh, for a year ahead or a few years in advance, even though I know I live in hope. There's a Pashto saying that, you know, we live or we eat this life with hope or we live in hope because nobody knows what's going to happen tomorrow. You know, especially as a Muslim, as a believer that my 
faith teaches me that you know I could I could die anytime I could you know anything could happen and I can't really plan uh, so far ahead I should just think about now in in you know now in in the presence but I always have hopes in in the future and thinking you know things will work out and have plans but on the journey what was incredibly frustrating not knowing where exactly we were going how long it will take us nobody really explained anything to us and that was that was difficult because you're just going and then you're not knowing you just hope you know you're going to get somewhere I remember when I, we were uh, on our first trip to uh, to Tehran to the capital of Iran we arrived uh, somewhere in a park and we literally spent the whole day there the guy said I, I'll be back in a few minutes and the guy literally didn't come back till the evening and so we were there not knowing whether to just go walk around to explore the city or what if we get lost we had no contact with this guy he told us to stay there and so we stayed in the same spot for literally I think eight to nine hours and uh, you know again that was frustrating and not knowing how tough the journey was. So I think in, in some ways um, it has helped me. I don't like uncertainty and I don't like, um, I get, I get angry quickly. <laughs> I get uh, upset about it when there's, you know, situation of uncertainty and situation of uh, not knowing what, what is next and what's going to happen. But at the same time, I have learned through experiences that, for example, I used to get incredibly unhappy about if, if there was like a lot of traffic and I had an event to attend or there was a, I had an interview and then, you know, I got stuck somewhere. I used to get upset. And then I realized, well, it's not, you know, it's not up to me. We have a saying that, you know, we plan, Allah plans, and he's the best planner uh, as a Muslim. So I have learned to take it easy because sometimes I'm quite harsh on myself. Um, and I just feel like, uh, especially now with the pandemic, I feel like we are lucky, we are fortunate that we are able to stay home and be able to uh, have a warm place, have clothes and, um, you know, have food. But there are people, millions across the world who doesn't have the luxury that we take for granted. And so I'm constantly not, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, this hopefully will be over uh, and it, it is what it is and we just got to deal with it and we just have to uh, be sensible and trying to be, um, trying to do the right thing, follow the advice uh, and not put, you know, and, and again, it makes me realize, it makes me think that how refugees, people like myself, we've been living through a pandemic. This is not new for us. So I have not seen my mom and my loved ones for the last 14 years. And now there are people complaining, saying, oh, they can't go to their grandparents' house or the grandparents can't see their grandchildren. Our, you know, uh, brothers and sisters and relatives can't travel to each other's homes. And I'm hoping that people will come out of this to be more compassionate, mm -hmm. to be more kind towards refugees and migrants and people who have left their, their loved ones, their families and everything behind. And we just should, we should have, I hope we'll have some understanding. But looking at the media and the way things are, there's been a lot of, you know, hatred and fear towards migrants and refugees in general. Uh, and again, in the US, you see that as well, especially, you know, thank God Trump is gone, but Trump has created a, a situation where it's it's okay to hate, it's okay to be racist, it's okay to discriminate based on people's religion and ethnicity and backgrounds and so on. So yeah, I'm hopeful that once this is over, we could be uh, more kinder because at the time, I feel like in the last 13 years I lived in Britain, people are so busy in their lives. People are so like busy and concentrating, uh, focusing on things which are not which are not important, like the materialistic world, I mean, of course, we have to survive and you have to work and earn money and pay bills. But at the same time, we have forgotten the importance of, you know, our relationship, our families, our loved ones and our health and our well-being. We haven't really thought about that. And I think now people are coming around to the idea that, you know, health is important. I mean, as, as there is a saying, health is wealth. So my life experiences, my journey has prepared me for this kind of, I mean, to be honest, for me, it's not really a big deal. But the thing that bothers me and keeps me awake, awake at night is seeing refugees stranded in Bosnia, seeing refugees stranded in Eastern Europe uh, and the Greek islands in um, Turkey and elsewhere where they're living, they're walking barefoot without shoes, they're living in 
minus you know 10 20 degrees uh, with very little help and support from the states and they've been you know dehumanizing the the european union basically uh been torturing them and exploiting them and uh, sending them back to to bosnia from croatia and other parts of europe in europe has been building bigger and bigger fences so that's the thing that makes me angry but i i'm fine i mean i know there's so many of us we're just so lucky and fortunate to be able to you know uh to not have the not have to worry about the food and not have to worry about shelter and not have to worry about the basic things that again that we take for granted but there are millions across the world they know healthcare they can't get a medication in people who are sick and we just we just have to just go to the hospital and get the help and support that we need and i just hope yeah i just hope we realize our privileges and realize how fortunate we are and then help and support our fellow human beings who are not who are not as fortunate i think it's extremely well said and it helps put things into perspective especially when someone might be complaining that they during lockdown, they can't get a haircut or they can't go to the gym. When when you think there's some people who haven't been. I mean, I complain. I was telling my wife that they look. My hair is long and there's no barbers. It's cold. <laughs> I, I, I've got I've got your beat. I've got your beat. There you go. <laughs> it's been about yeah. <laughs> this this is quarantine like hair complain. right here. I have, I have become I have become very complicit in a lot of things. I complain about the weather. I complain about small things. And then you're right when you put things into bigger picture and the perspectives. Our problem is nothing compared to the problems. So the the issue for refugees and migrants and asylum seekers in Europe and elsewhere in the world and undocumented migrants, you know, coming from uh, Latin America to the U.S., their issue has increased. Their challenges and difficulties has not decreased. You know, we might be complaining about small things, but for refugees and migrants, their situation and their circumstances have got worse. Mm-hmm. They still need help and support. Even during a pandemic, they had to survive. They had to eat. They had to have shelter. They had to be able to take, you know, uh, um, have water and sanitation. I saw some images and videos of uh, refugees and, and migrants in Bosnia and elsewhere in Eastern Europe, showering outside in the cold, you know, just cleaning their clothes. And I'm like, my God, I can't even walk outside wearing a big jumper. Uh, and so, yeah. Did you enjoy the writing process of the book? Because I'm curious as if it was hard to relive some of those memories and some of those experiences. Well, my friend, I wish I didn't have to write it. I wish I didn't have to go through the experiences that I went through. It's not something that I enjoyed, but when we, when the opportunity came along, I worked with the help of a writer and a journalist, Nadine, a wonderful lady. She helped me put my words on paper. English is my fifth language, so it was a little of a struggle, but you know, we managed. It was hard work, emotionally, mentally. I, I went back to places that I wanted to forget. You know, mm-hmm. I went back to uh, memories and, and things that I was trying to let go of and move on from, and I had to relive so it was it was tough it was not easy it was a difficult let me sometimes people say you know when you write it's a cathartic experience but for me it wasn't it was and especially now i'm talking about it what i have realized is i've done about 350 to 400 talks in the last five years across like schools universities and and conferences my story has become a story for me it's not when i, I don't think about it deep i don't think about it because when i'm telling my story it's just a story yeah. Um, but if I'm thinking about it in more details and I'm thinking about it emotionally and, and like within myself, then it upsets me. So usually when I do the talk, I tell people, look, this is just a story, but this is a real story. And this, sadly, there are millions of people on the move right now. And there, you know, there are stories as important that we need to hear and we need to hear these people's voices and treat them as individuals with decency, with decency and agency. They are people who deserve our, our respect and we should treat them with dignity and show solidarity. So the writing process was incredibly difficult. You mentioned your career as a public speaker. When sharing your story, it's rewarding to hear about the people that you impact who can relate to your story. So what have been some of your memorable experiences in sharing your story with other refugees? 
So mostly my talks are usually raising awareness about refugees, but I do meet young refugees and just older refugees at events and sometimes youth groups. I just go and have a talk to them to give them some hope and sense of aspiration because a lot of the time they isolated, they don't have the right help and guidance and support. So I just tell them, look, I was in your situation. I was in your shoes. I came here with nothing. Look, I have a degree. I have a master's. I carried the Olympic torch. I wrote a book. I've traveled the world. And now, look, I, this is possible because most of them are a lot more clever and intelligent than I was and I am still. So, you know, there's some really bright minds, but they just, they just feel demotivated. They feel they lost self-esteem. They're uh, discouraged by the, the immigration situation, uh, living in a limbo, not having their right status, waiting, you know, waiting for their decision to be made by the home office and by the local, by the authorities, um, you know, not having the right help and support in terms of learning the language and integrating and so on. So when I talk to young refugees, it's quite, it's quite um, humbling to see how they, they feel inspired, they feel empowered just by meeting me. We don't, I, we don't normally discuss our journeys because we, we have very similar journeys and I don't want to be telling them something that I already know. I always, whenever I meet them, I talk to them about their current situation, how they're feeling, how things are, how things could be improved, where they were their challenges, who could help. And so we just talk about, you know, their, their future, their aspiration, their ambition. It's more, you know, it's more hopeful than talking about the journeys and experiences, which yeah. is quite negative. Um, and so, yeah, but my ultimate experience has been, you know, just talking to people, meeting some really amazing and, and, and people that I get inspired in. And I do what I do because I see the impact and how my difference it makes. Because a lot of people are just unaware of what's happening, what it means to be a refugee, how much you had to go through from an asylum seeker to becoming a a recognized refugee and then to becoming a citizen it takes and you know, it took me 14 13 years i'm not yet citizen i just recently got my application accepted but i still haven't had the certificate yet so this is a long process long journey and uh, going through school and college and university in life generally it's it's not easy it's a challenge and some people think you know it's easy we just come here to take their jobs and benefits when in fact if you're an asylum seeker you can't work in the uk you can't get benefits and you just have to survive on five pound a day so you get about 36 pound a week i don't know that's like you know 50 dollars a week that you had to survive on and just like you know just telling people that and also like for example i wanted to bring my wife from denmark to here to get her a visa that took a, a huge amount of time and i had to pay like you know three four thousand pound for for the application fee and then we still got refused and we had to battle you know for for the things that again we take for granted in the west or in you know within our families in our countries but there are others who spend their lives trying to you know trying to be reunited with their loved ones and so it's tough and so whenever i go and do talks i i, I try to you know, give voice to refugees and to be that human face with the statistics and numbers. But at the same time, I want people to not only be inspired, but I want them to take action. I want them to be good human being. I want them to support and help not only refugees, but help, you know, anyone be nice, be kind and just understand that kindness goes a long way. Well, your work with refugees is remarkable. I'm curious, do you have any plans of returning to Afghanistan to help people in need there? Uh, I certainly love to go back to Afghanistan, but as I was saying earlier, the situation has gotten from bad to worse in the last 14 years since mm -hmm. I left home. Uh, I left to be able to go back. Most of my Afghan friends want to go back. And a lot of them, you know, most of our people in the government and ministers has actually gone back from the UK, from the US, from other European and other countries who, where they have studied and lived. We do want to go back and contribute to try to rebuild the country. But I'm doing whatever I can now from here, trying to support. But certainly, especially with the Afghan displacement. So we have, uh, we used to be the largest refugee population in the world. Uh, until 2014, the Syrian has taken over, and recently we used to be the second largest refugee population. But now, in the the crisis in, in Southern America and in, in, um, Latin America and Venezuela, where there have been a huge influx of um, uh, refugees because of the instability there and the situation, 
with poverty and so on. So, you know, Afghans used to be the largest asylum seekers in Europe. Uh, now we're still quite, you know, high in the numbers. And we are, Afghanistan is the top five producing refugee countries. And we have a huge internally displaced people as well. We had about two, three million Afghan returns back from Pakistan and Iran in there needing help and support. So there's a lot of work to be done, especially in the area of displacement and helping children and young people have access to education, healthcare, you know, clean water and sanitation, all these basic things that we just don't even think about here. So I just mm -hmm. hope to do these things and bring it to the, to the attention of the world. And that's the plan. I do hope to go back when things are a little more stable and I hope there's uh, some sort of peace and security so, you know, to not fear for my life. Um, because at the moment, the country is sadly just a lawlessness pla lawless place. Not only the Taliban, not only the terrorist organization that operates there, there's about 20 terrorist organization operating. And actually, the Taliban are, are not officially, not even officially the terrorist organization, which is strange. But there are, there are kidnapping, there are you know, ransoms, there are all sorts of you know, corruptions and injustices. People, I, I see videos and I see reports of people being killed just for an iPhone, just people being killed by like for a thousand dollars and so on. So there's a, the country is in a very bad situation. So I, I do, I do get, um, you know, my mom, whenever I speak to her, she tells me not to come back because things are so bad. But I hope at some point I'll be able to go back and try to use my experiences in education and expertise to rebuild the country and trying to be a positive, um, you know, use it for a positive, impactful, um, you know, uh, country in development. Well, serving as the voice of the underrepresented, you are an inspiration to many. But I'm interested in who inspires you. Where do you find inspiration to continue doing what you do? Um, interesting. So basically, like, you know, some people have this inspiration saying, oh, Mahatma Gandhi or I don't know, Nelson Mandela. But I'm not, I don't have that kind of inspiration. What inspires me, sadly, is the suffering of people, suffering of fellow human beings. Whenever I have traveled back to the jungle in northern France, the Kali jungle where refugees are stranded, whenever I've been back to Greece and elsewhere in Europe and I've seen... I've been, I've been back to Paris a few months ago. I was in Paris and I saw people sleeping under bridges. You know, Paris is a beautiful city, it's a city of love. But actually, when you meet, you know, when you see these refugees, asylum seekers there, it's absolutely beyond heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. And so the, the suffering and the injustice um, inspires me. So there's no really, there's no really positive thing that inspires me as such, but it's the, the it's what the injustices and the wrongdoings, the oppressions that makes me determined to do what I do. And when I see, you know, um, over a million or so vegan Muslim in concentration camp in China, when I see the Rohingyas being, um, being ethnically cleansed from Burma, when I see, you know, the situation in Kashmir and elsewhere in the world and um, the way, you know, minorities are treated and, and it just makes me want to do the best I could. You know, I used to be very ignorant of the Holocaust and not had much of an understanding, you know, growing up in a very conservative Afghanistan. Um, I had, you know, I had, uh, I didn't had a positive view of the Jewish people, or I didn't had much, um, much in common. I thought, but you know, when I go to the UK and learned and studied and kind of educated myself and have many Jewish friends now, I've been thinking for a while, how did the world allowed six million innocent people to be murdered? And then I think about what's happening now and what was happening in the states with Trump and what's happening here in the UK with Brexit and the populism and the nationalism across. Um, Eastern Europe and how people are saying things like, oh, we want to keep Europe Christian. We want to keep Europe white. And, you know, we're doing you a favor and we've got to stop this, these refugees. They're terrorists. They're, they're, they're coming here. They're invading us. These, these are the language of, this is the language of fascism. This is, this is very, very dangerous. And I feel like in the future, future generation will ask us, what were we doing when our fellow humans beings were suffering and were going through pain 
because of our policies or because of our actions or because of our inaction. So I definitely think like we all have a moral responsibility uh, and an obligation and a duty to, to do our part, to do whatever little we could, you know, going on a protest, going on a demonstration, uh, a peaceful one, obviously not the one that we saw with the capital, um, you know, incursion by, by the rioters, but, you know, a peaceful demonstration, uprising your voices, writing to your MP, your congressman, your senator, uh, you know, talking to people in the States and so on, saying we need to do more to welcome refugees, we need to be a town or city of century, talking to universities and getting them to give more scholarships, um, you know, befriending and mentoring refugees in a personal capacity as individuals. The things we could do, you know, donating to local charities, helping the work of UNHCR and other big charities, you know. So when we play our part, you know, hopefully the world will be a better place. I mean, there are a lot of injustices happening across the world. There are 80 million displaced people. Uh, there are about 30 million refugees. The 50 million displaced are internally displaced in their own countries. About 8 million Syrians in, in internally displaced, about 5 million Afghans or so, and there's others in the world. So uh, half of these 30 million refugees are children, and most of them have no access to education, no access to uh, their basic rights. And that's not, that's not okay. That's not, it's not supposed to happen. But sadly, it's happening because they're from North Africa, they're from the Middle East, and we don't value, I don't know, we don't value every life the same way we should, the way we value a Western life, for example. You're inspired by taking action. And I admire that so much about you. What is My Bright Kite and why is it important to you? So My Bright Kite came about, it's a, it's a company or a charity we set up with a, with a friend of mine, Nola, a colleague of mine um, in Northern England in Leeds. Um, she was doing a lot of work with children in Calais as well as in Jordan, in, in Lebanon, in Turkey and elsewhere with refugee children. And then she read my book and wrote to me, she wrote a lovely blog about how it has impacted her. And then we, you know, she said, you know, we want to do something. What you're doing is great raising awareness. Let's do more something more together. And so we started uh, the, the, the project to trying to um, include, trying to help young refugees with inclusions and empowerments and help them with their aspirations. So I was doing a lot of raising awareness work, but I want to do something practical with young refugees. So we were able to work with schools and colleges, uh, work with youth groups uh, and to do like, you know, art projects and to do exhibitions to do trips and traveling, just getting young refugees to feel belong and be part of this community and society and get them to express their views and their feelings through art. So it was really interesting. Most, Nola did all the actual work and I was just like, you know, supporting her. Um, we did it for about two years and then COVID happened. Um, things are on pause at the moment and my colleague had a, had a twin babies and I had a baby girl as well. Congrats. And so we've been, we've been busy uh, with our families as well. And, and uh, so things are, Things are kind of stopped because schools are closed. Most of our works are at school. Um, a lot of people are struggling financially. So usually, you know, if they invite us, they would pay us a fee. But now they, you know, everybody's everybody's in a difficult situation. So yeah, my bread card has been a. It came out of our, you know, our work and efforts and dedication to help and support refugees on more a strategic level, not just like going about and raising awareness, which is good, but then doing something more, you know, programs with young people, doing schoolwork, uh, workshops, and getting these young refugees to produce. Like, you know, they want to produce videos, they want to produce um, artworks. We had a really great exhibition um, and uh, it was some, some sort of migration anniversary in Leeds, at Leeds Museum. It was great. Uh, and so these young people produce their work and they, it gives them, you know, self-confidence, gives them uh, the tools and motivates them and you know, makes them realize that they, they have a voice and they matter. Uh, and so, yeah, it was, it was a great experience, actually. And I hope, I hope we could continue after the pandemic is over in some capacity. One of the things you mentioned is awareness 
but a lot of times people don't know what they don't know. So how can people find out more information and, and what are the resources they can look to, to find more information about the refugee crisis that we do face? Sure. I think we live in a world which, is, which we should not be, I mean, it's very easy to find information, but sometimes we don't know how to go about it or yeah. we're not interested in the subject matter. We live, you know, we live in, a, in an era of the internet and everything is so, so available. It's out there. So I would encourage people to check out you know, Amnesty International, the Human Rights Watch, websites and social media like refugee organizations like the US have a US refugee council, the UK has a refugee council and other refugee action. Um, there's so many charities doing work locally, nationally and internationally. The UNHCR, the UN, United Nations um, High Commissioner for Refugees, the IOM, International Migration, International Organization of Migration. There is so many um, you know, organization and information out there if you want to learn from about refugees and just like just google it uh and hopefully people find out and also just reading stories like mine and listening to this kind of you know the podcast that we're doing these, these are all um way of us educating so hopefully there will be some people who listen to this and wants to find out more they could go and, and you know search, research for themselves and find out there uh, i'm sure there will be a lot of local and, and state level and, and national and international charities and organizations working with with migrants with refugees and and, and you see how you could get involved, how you could contribute as a volunteer. I think volunteering is a great way. I was, uh, whenever I visited Greece or Cali in the last few years, I met quite a few Americans actually coming over and helping out, which is really like, it was quite touching. Um, and, uh, and it's nice that I have a friend, she's from the States and she works with the refugees and migrants in, in the Greek islands. And it's, uh, in a, so it's, it's wonderful to see that, that human beings are making the extra, they're going the extra mile and making the efforts to help and support their fellow human beings in need. I'm asking this question of my own selfish interest. Lightless Guy, fantastic book. But what are some of the other books that, that you've read that have left a, a mark on you that, that you'd recommend? Because I'm looking to, to learn more about it as well. Sure, there are a lot of refugees. There's, there's refugee books written by journalists and by academics and by other refugees. So I have a friend, an Afghan friend, who recently written a book about, it's called The Boy with Two Hearts. It's a beautiful story about okay. an Afghan family, you know, escaping the Taliban. And then one of the brothers have a, uh, a very um, unique heart disease where it could only be could only get treatment in the states or in the UK, and that's a wonderful story. There's uh, there's so many other books about the ungrateful refugee, you know, Malala's book, Khalid Hosseini's books. Um, there are books on uh, you know um, city city uh, city of throne. Um, when you when you go on Amazon and you search you know refugee books, you will find loads of tons of books, and there there are quite a good one, especially written by, uh, by refugees themselves and from a refugee perspective, because there's some really good books about, you know, written by academics and by journalists and by uh, authors, which is fine. And it's done with, usually it's done with good intention, but, you know, a story written from a refugee perspective, it's quite, quite different and more challenging. It challenges us to think uh, and make us uh, feel uncomfortable. Is this daughter number one? Yeah, yeah. She just came about two months ago. So we are very new to parenting. Very cool. Very cool. Well, other than being a new father during a pandemic, which is an incredible challenge as it is, what else are your goals and projects plans for 2021? So basically, I have every year, I, I hope to do about, you know, 80 to 100 talks and events and travel to a few countries. Usually, you know, I go to Europe. Me and my wife, we do road trips and we take our family to places. My wife family lives in Denmark, so we go places in the EU. And sometimes, you know, we go to, I came to the States to do a talk in Rochester once to a college there. And I did a talk, uh, um, once did a talk in Buffalo, no, in Hamburg near Buffalo. And I did a few talks here and there in, in the States. But so this year, my, our plan is to survive yeah. and, and, and to just take it uh, day by day because there's so much uncertainty. I mean, you never know 
when the lockdowns will end. We, we constantly have lockdowns and then, you know, it's, it's uh, lifted and then there's another lockdown. Um, today, sadly, the, the deaths rate in the UK uh, cross over 100,000. In the US, they mean 400,000. It's terrible. It's very heartbreaking that we have so much uh, loss of lives. And I think it's, it's, it's because of uh, lack of action by politicians and by saying politicians... The country who with the highest COVID um, deaths are the countries which, with you know, nationalist and populist leaders. They're not the countries like you know, like for example, if you look at New Zealand, if you look at Vietnam and Taiwan, you know, countries uh, in Asia, you know, South South Korea, um, they they dealt with it really really well. But places like the UK, Brazil, India, the US, because of these nationalistic leaders. So what I was, I'm trying to say is that. When we vote for the right, when we vote for the wrong people, then that's what happens. In a, you know, our action have consequences. We need to be voting for the right people to to represent us and to make difficult decisions at difficult times. So, yeah, we just want to want to continue doing what we're doing. I hope to be able to travel, um, to go back. I'm, I'm hoping to get my British passport and be able to travel more easily because I've been traveling with a UN travel document. It's been quite um, restrictive, um, and I hope to be able to somehow see my mom and my family. Uh, I love to take our girls because we do a lot of traveling in, even in the UK, but we haven't been anywhere since since uh, since March actually. Uh, and so, yeah, I hope this year will be. I'm hoping to write some more stuff and continue with um, doing this kind of. So I've been doing a lot of um, Zoom um, panel just just this afternoon. I had a had a conversation about Afghan refugees um, in the UK with a group of friends and stuff. And so I want to continue doing what I'm doing raising awareness and trying to bring to people's attention what's happening. There's been a lot of campaigns in the UK around, um, you know, lifting the ban, allowing asylum seekers to work, ending detention, because we put people here in detention indefinitely, people who have suffered, people who have seen violence, uh, and we, we do them a favor by putting them in a detention without a time limit. And we don't, um, family reunification is very difficult in the UK. So all these campaigns that I hope to continue contributing to, and, and I just hope to be able to travel again. And we, we are just been busy with the with our little girls. So we, we have, in a way, we are lucky because otherwise we would have a lot of depression and anxiety. Yeah. If we didn't have uh, the girls, we name her Zoha, which means, um, which means forenoon, like the time between lunch and afternoon. Yeah. And so she's keeping us, keeping us awake and keeping us busy, uh, which is a good thing. But I hope to be able to travel and to do what I'm doing, continue doing what I'm doing, uh, <clears throat> and find more opportunities in, in helping and supporting refugees and getting their voices out there. Um, and getting the world to understand our, our, our struggles and trying to help and support us. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you have your hands full with Zoha. In England, have you found a great Afghan restaurant, great food, or Eastern Asian, Middle Eastern? Have you found some? There are a lot of, I mean, England, one of the things is great about England is the food. So we have food from all over the world. It's very diverse. So we live in Northamptonshire at the moment, recently near Manchester, and uh, there was so many Afghans, Indians, Pakistani, and, you know, South Asian and Asian, Central Asian. Uh, food, Iranians, but here, around here, there's no Afghan restaurant, but about half an hour drive to, to Coventry or Leicester, there's a lot of uh, Afghan food in restaurants, and particularly in London. So whenever we, uh, we, we get together with friends or journalists or people that we want to meet, I usually take them to an Afghan restaurant to get them to try our Afghan cuisine and, and to, to experience our Afghan culture and hospitality. So yeah, food, we are, we are big on food and uh, we, love, we love food. Uh, and whenever we travel, we always, you know, trying to find food places and especially like Afghan or from, you know, from the Middle East. So yeah, in the England, there is no shortage of Middle Eastern food. I love Middle Eastern Afghan food. So you mark it down. 2021 will make it happen next time I'm in London or Leicester. I'm calling you up. We're going to get some. Indeed, we will, we will be very happy to take you out for an Afghan dinner or 
or make it for you at home. And there's a very good, a uh, few restaurants actually near. Yeah. Oh, there's a lot actually in Birmingham, but there's, there's two or one, a really good one in Coventry. So usually I go and bring food from there. They just make the best Afghan kabali palau. They make the best kebabs and naan breads. Uh, and so, yeah, they make all the right, the right set of, the right, the right, um, set of food um, to keep you going. I agree. I agree. No place better. Oh, I love it. The book's fantastic. I encourage everyone to read it. How else can people, how can they find the book, but also how can they stay up to date with your life and career? Excellent. So the book, The Lightless Skies, uh, was published five years ago. And I wish it wasn't relevant today. But then, I mean, as an author, you want your book to be relevant. But I mean, <laughs> I would rather yeah. the book was not relevant. I would rather this refugee crisis, this challenge, just has been you know decreased so you know not existed but when the book came came out in 2015 october there are about 60 million displaced people now there are 80 million so there's about 20 million increase in the displacement in the last uh, five years so the book is published in six seven countries in six languages so including the u.s uh, people can get it from amazon um, and uh, they can get it in bookshops in the U.S. as well as in Europe and elsewhere. And I really encourage people to read my story. And, and the way to keep up to date of what I'm doing is usually I, I, I do a lot of tweets. So Twitter is a good place, um, at Gulwali P, as I think my Twitter handle. Um, I use you know, Instagram and other Facebook and social media as well. But I think Twitter is the place where I share a lot of information around refugees, asylum protection, migration, and share you know, opportunities of volunteering and what refugee organizations are campaigning on. So I just retweet stuff and write stuff. And so, yeah, let's hope uh, people stay in touch. And I hope people listen to this and uh, uh, people learn something from it about, you know, uh, Afghans, about refugees, about Afghanistan. And they end up, you know, to read the lightless sky. So it's, you know, it's available in French, in German, Italian, uh, even in Chinese for some reason. Uh, I, hope, I, hope it, I, hope, I hope it could be published in more languages, especially I'm really keen for Spanish, perhaps Swedish, uh, Greek. I've been speaking to some people, um, but it's just like, you know, things are pretty bad at the moment. Things are on hold. And I also hope at some point there would be a film uh, in the making uh, of the book and the story so people could, could go and watch it. But at the moment, yeah, I, I encourage people to read my story and the story of other refugees and migrants to understand and, and, and humanize the debate and discussion around the topic. Fantastic story. I've learned so much today. I learned so much from the book. I learned so much from you today. Incredible story, inspirational. I'm indebted. Thank you so much. For, I'm honored to have you on the show. Great to be with you. I'm really, I'm really pleased to be our path cross and hopefully... Uh, when you come to England, when you come to Leicester, we will, we will catch up uh, for some Afghan food in a, in a, in a catch up. Uh, what do you guys say? Chat? We can, we can have it. Yeah. <laughs> we will. Hey, Leicester, that's not, it's not far from you. So we'll make it happen. So that's, that's brilliant. But wonderful. Great to speak to you. And yeah, wishing you well. I hope our path will cross in person and um, keep doing what you do. And thanks for having me. Thank you so much. We'll talk again. Yeah, all the best. Take care, my friend. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening. Much appreciation to Gowali. I'm going to hold you to that food invite next time I'm in Leicester, Gowali. We'll make it happen. Make sure to pick up his book, The Lightless Guy. It's an unforgettable story and will be one of the best books you've read in a long time. My new book, Curiosity, is currently available on Amazon. Curiosity celebrates the knowledge that strangers have to offer. Everyone has unique expertise and endless wisdom awaits the perpetually curious. Featuring 200 episodes from the Any Given Runway show, Curiosity explores the diverse lives of athletes, adventurers, and performers. From daring voyages across the Atlantic to unforgettable performances in the West End, curiosity celebrates the sophisticated thing we call life. Everyone has a story. Each person is a scholar. Thank you for listening. Fill up that passport. I'll see you on the road. Aviento. Aviento.